Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Recorded live. Good evening, and thank you for joining us this evening. Um, we are gathered here to, as I have uh, indicated uh, by our sign on the door and uh, on our lesson here, Talking Bible. I want to talk about the Bible tonight. And we want to do it uh, from the book of James. So if you have your smartphone or tablet or Bible, please join us. <clears throat> please join us at uh, James chapter 1. And the book of James is a New Testament book, or actually it's literally it's an epistle, if you will, of a letter. Uh, so... If you have time, turn there and, and uh, join me if, we, if you will join us now in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you this evening as we enter your holy presence. We do so in the righteous name of Jesus Christ. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you minister your word unto us as only you can, under the anointing of your Holy Spirit. Teach us, educate us, raise us up in your word, O oh God. Then use us to go forth, Lord God. Uh, in applying your word to our lives so that we may be an instrument of uh, joy and righteousness to you, that we may be witnesses unto you, God our Father, that we may bring glory unto your name through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray and give you thanks on this evening. Amen. <clears throat> Again, welcome. Uh, and thank you for attending the joining Talking Bible this evening. This evening I want to begin a teaching series on the epistle of James. Our study will begin with, with an introduction. And as you know, the introduction is important because it gives you a snapshot of what the book is all about or what the teaching will be all about in this particular case as well as the epistle uh, of James. Although I won't cover everything in the introduction on this evening, it will give you some idea of what we will be discussing for, on this morning. So if you don't have pen and paper, I encourage you to, uh, to do so. Or if you have a keyboard um, that uh, attached to your smart tablet or you have your computer in front of you, perhaps you ought to take some, I recommend that you take some notes and then go back and study uh, what you learned on this evening. Uh, and then if you have any questions on next uh, <clears throat> Tuesday, let us know, and uh, I'll be happy to try and answer those questions for you. Um, for example, under the introduction, I want to talk to, I want to introduce you to the author. I want to tell you, talk a little bit about who he is, where he's from. <clears throat> I want to touch on his family. 
And then I wanted to talk about where and when and where um, James composed his epistles uh, and the language in which he wrote. And I want to maybe touch a little bit on the key verse, the primary theme of uh, of uh, the book of James, uh, the epistle of James, rather. And then I want to um, address to whom he wrote this epistle. And it's a very ambitious um, undertaking at this time because we have uh, less than an hour. But uh, I do want to answer any questions that I that you may have. <clears throat> let me let me just start with um, a quote that Thomas D. Leah, in his article entitled uh, "James: Outline and Introduction," where he quotes Richard well R. V. G. Uh, Tasker as making, and he said Tasker he quotes Tasker as making the following statement concerning the Epistle James, and it's um, it's something that I really really uh, agree with. Uh, and James is a very practical book, and, and we'll talk about practical and, uh, as we uh, move further and further into the teaching of this uh, very special epistle. Tasker says, this epistle would seem to be of special value to the individual Christian during what we might describe as the second stage in his, pil- in his pilgrim's progress, or progress as some say. So after he has led, after he has been led to respond to the gospel of grace and come to have the joyful assurance that he is a redeemed child of God, if he is to to advance along the way of holiness, And if the ethical implications of his new faith are to be translated into practical realities, then he needs the stimulus and the challenge of the epistle James. And I think this is very, I I love this, which is why I decided to quote it uh, verbatim, because it's uh, a word for word, because it's it's, it's in a nutshell, it just sums up what the the, uh, epistle of James is talking about. Um, now, by way of the authorship, in verse 1, if you turn there real quick, in verse 1, and it says James. The first word that we see here is James. And he, and he, James calls himself a bondservant, or in the Greek that word is doulos, uh, doulos of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting because we would say, well, that's the author of the book because it starts out with his name. That may or may not be true. Uh, There has been quite over the years, there have been some pretty lively conversations about the author of this book. If it was really James or, uh, and if it's James, which James? Because, you know, in, in, um, in the New Testament, we have uh, James, the brother of John, the father, the son of Zebedee. Then we have we have Joseph, uh, or Judas, if you will, the son of Alphaeus, and not Judas Iscariot, but uh, Judas uh, is the name of the young man. 
at that time. And then we have um, James um, and um, we have James, the brother of Jesus. And so we have a number of James, but which one? And that is the question. And so the, the Greek name for 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 uh, Joe James is interesting is Yokobus, uh, Yokobus, uh, uh, and that's a Greek name, but it's also um, the name. It is also the name Jacob, J A C O B, and so James is also known as, uh, as I said, Jacob. Now, when we hear the name Jacob. I'm sure that for those of us who have more uh, familiar with our Old Testament scripture, uh, as the Jews would say, our Hebrew scripture, because they don't see the um, the uh, what we call the Old Testament. They don't see it as old. They see it as relevant. I believe that our use of the word old of the of the title Old Testament uh, is not an indication that it is no longer uh, a viable source of, of guidance or instruction. It is still the Word of God, and so. But when we say old, we, we're we're talking primarily about that it was written before the New Testament was written. Now we don't live under the tenets of the Old Testament anymore because Jesus Christ has come into the world. He has borne the sins of men on the cross at Calvary. He's given his life on the cross at Calvary for our sins. He is, um, he was, is a, I think it's uh, Mark uh, 10, 45 or so says that Jesus, when he quoted himself saying, we quote Jesus as saying, but the man of, the son of God, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Uh, and so that is, he became Isaiah 53, verses 11 and 12, the suffering servant, or 10 and 11, one of those 11 and 12. He became the suffering servant of Isaiah, which means that it bruised, it, you know, he was bruised for our iniquity, wounded for our transgressions, and, and uh, the chastisement of our peace, the Bible, Isaiah tells us, was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. So we know that Jesus was whipped 39, 40 times save one. In other words, he was hit 39 times with a cat and nine tail. Uh, uh, so we know that he's, so by his stripes, we, every stripe um, that he experienced at the cat and, at the uh, wielding, if you will, of the cat and nine tail, we, uh, was for our sins because he was a sinless, uh, perfect person that never, committed a crime or never committed a sin of any kind whatsoever. He was not against anyone. He was not against the political, um, the politicians of that day, of his day. He was not against the priests when they were in line with the word of God. Uh, in fact, um, <clears throat> and I will move on here, but in fact, uh, one of the ways that we see that Jesus was pretty upset with the Pharisees uh, and the Sadducees or the Sanhedrin is that when he went into, when he made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem uh, that week before, uh, that Passion Week, that week before he was nailed to the cross, he entered into the, the uh, 
the temple courts, and there were men selling and mixed money exchangers, and they were, you know, they had uh, turned God's house really into uh, a place of commerce, a place of business. And Jesus was pretty upset. He says, you know, my house, my father's house should be a house, is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a house of den. And, of course, now Jesus was alluding back to um, Psalm chapter, uh, the 69th number mm-hmm. of Psalm and the ninth, yeah, den of thieves, a den of robbers. Uh, thank you, Executive Pastor. And um, so in that 69th number of Psalm and that ninth verse, because the disciples saw what he was doing and they remembered that his zeal, that zeal for the house, my house, uh, you know, and, and Jesus' actions dim, really demonstrated that he had a zeal for uh, the house of God because he reverenced God because literally he was in the flesh God in the flesh. So here's what I say. Here's what um, Psalm 69 and 9 says, because zeal for your house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When we value those things of God, as Jesus valued the house of God, it is a place of worship, not a place of courtship. Uh, it's not a place to go and find a wife or a husband. It's not a place to, to sell food and, and stuff like that. It is a house. It is a house of worship, a house where we go to spend time in the presence of our God and to hear the word of God and to peace upon the word of God, that we may grow. And, and indeed, the scriptures, you know, we are to edify um, the body of Christ. That's one of the uh, one of the things that uh, Ephesians, I believe it is chapter 6, says for the edifying of the body of, of God. So we are to build one another up. And we come to the house of the Lord to build to build each other up. But, um, but when we think about Jacob as a familiar name, because when we hear him, we immediately think Old Testament accounts of the person bearing this name. So he was the grandson of Abraham and Sarah. Of course, and, um, and, we, we, and, and Abraham was 99 when, 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 uh, when Sarah conceived, and Sarah was 89. And so in that 21st verse, in that third chapter of Genesis, we see that they, in their old age, gave birth to Isaac. Uh, and of course, Isaac married Rebecca, and Rebecca, uh, and that was in the 24th, uh, 24th chapter in the 67th verse, uh, and the 25th and the 19th to the 26th verse, they have Isaac intercede for his wife, Rebecca. And then, of course, Rebecca, uh, you know, struggling with, uh, she's had this struggle inside of her, and so she. So while Isaac prayed for her to conceive, she prayed to God for understanding of what was going on in her body. And I think that is so powerful, uh, uh, an observation, because I think so many times we, we, we think about the Old Testament women, we think about maybe just Hannah praying uh, and, and becoming the mother of, of Samuel, so she was the wife of Elkanah, and he took care of her. And Eli thought that she was drunk, but what she really was was she was crying out to God. Her lips were moving, but she could not say anything because of the depth of pain, uh, of the pain that she was experiencing uh, within her for not being able to give her husband a child. 
So she did conceive. The Lord heard her, and she did conceive. Well, here we know that now we know that Rebecca herself prayed and talked to God about the the, the struggle or the turmoil that was going on inside of her body. So when we hear Jacob's name, we immediately we're immediately drawn back to the Old Testament figure that married two sisters, Leah and Rachel. And we won't go into all that transpired there or what what led up to him marrying the two sisters, but you can find that in Genesis chapter 29, verses 15 uh, through 30. Uh, but Jacob, um, but Jacob, I mean Isaac and Rebecca had two sons, and Jacob was the twin brother of the Esau. Esau was first to come forth uh, from the womb. You'll find that in 25, 20, chapter 25 of Genesis, verses 23, 22, rather, through 26. Uh, and um, as Esau was coming forth, <laughs> Jacob grabbed hold of his heel, and they called him, um, you know, yeah, they call him heel snatcher or the word supplanter. Um, but he was also, Jacob was also the father of 12 sons uh, and one daughter. Dinah was the name of the daughter. Uh, but the 12 sons, Genesis chapter 29, verses 31 through chapter 30, verse 24, and then chapter 35, verse 18, and then 22 through 26, we we hear we 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 come to see all of the names in that twenty second through twenty six. So we come to see all the names of of um, Jacob's son, uh, but Jacob is also the one known as the one who wrestled with God, and because and during that wrestling time, God he God blessed him by changing his name from Jacob, heel snatcher or supplanter, sneaky one, if you will. Or or treacherous one, or whatever you, however you want to define that supplanter, or or deceiver to Israel, the name Israel. And so today we have what you know as the Israelites, and the Israelites are the Jewish is the Jewish are the Jewish people of the Jewish nation. And the word Israel means for you struggle with God and with men. This is God speaking to Jacob, and, and I mean Jacob, and actually giving his name Israel, meaning saying that for you struggle with God and with man and have prevailed. And I don't know the colloquial way of defining it is that he striveth with God or he ruling with God. And you'll find that in Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 32. But the general consensus among scholars and theologians concerning this, this man, James, uh, it, uh, and this epistle is that he is the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we see that in a number of places within the, the New Testament scriptures. For example, if you turn to Matthew real quick, chapter 13, verses 55 and 56. Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 and 56. That is the first book in the New Testament or the first of the four Gospels, if you will. And these Gospels are chronicles of the life of Jesus Christ. And there, along with the book of Acts, are really historical in nature because they each tell from a different perspective who Jesus 
about the life of Jesus as uh, as he walked upon among upon the earth here in human form. Uh, Matthew chapter thirteen verses fifty five and fifty six. If you have it, if you feel like if you're on the call and you like to read, uh, I'd love to have you participate. I'd love to hear somebody else's voice other than my own. But I want you to get into this because I want you to read and I want this word to get into your spirit. Uh, so please feel free to, to, to read if you like. If not, I will read it. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty words? And then verse 56, they asked the question, or 55 rather, they asked the question, is this not the carpenter's son, meaning Joseph? Is not his mother called Mary? And, when, and his brothers, James, Joseph, and Simon, and Judas? So you see here, I should have said 54 and 50. And, and then, of course, I put 56 in there because, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where did this man get all these things? So they were astonished at the fact that Jesus um, was so powerful in his delivery and his representation of God. He knew the word of God, and no one had ever heard someone speak the word of God with such clarity, with such power, with such authority uh, as, as Jesus did, and they were astonished. But then they got a little indignant. Is not this the son of the carpenter's son? And is not his mother called Mary? And is not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and, and Judas? Are these not his brothers and are not his sisters here among us? Where did this man get this um, these all these things they could not understand it, but in this we see that James was mentioned. James, and then Mark chapter six, verse three, part A. Mark chapter six, just part A of that 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 third verse in that sixth chapter, and it and it simply reads. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? So again, we see that um, he has mentioned, James is mentioned here. Then turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. This is the Apostle Paul now talking, um, and he's giving an account of the appearance of Jesus post-resurrection, if you will, because Paul had a personal encounter with the Lord in that ninth chapter of the book of Acts. When you find some time, go there and read that, and you will, you will understand what I'm saying. But in that seventh verse of the, of the 15th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians, we read, and Paul is saying, he says, after and talking about the appearance of Jesus, he talks about that he was seen by the apostles, and then uh, by um, more than 500 brethren at one time, and the majority of them were still alive at the time that Paul 
was writing this epistle uh, to the writing this epistle um, to the Corinthian to the Corinthian or to the Corinthian church. And he says, after that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all he was seen by me also, uh, as by one born out of due time. That's not what I want to talk about, but just that first part there. That that first part. After that he was seen by James. So we see now we have James being there again. And then Galatians chapter one, verse nine. Turn there in your Bible, if you will, to Galatians chapter one. Verse 9. Galatians chapter 1, verse 9. And in Galatians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul, again writing this time to the church of Galatia, and he says, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches, where am I? Am I, am I in the right one? Oops, second, I mean, chapter, second chapter, I'm sorry. I'm just going to town here. You guys not correct. Did I say first chapter one? Yes, you did. Uh, I blew it. Okay. Then here we go. Jesus and John, those who seen the pillars, they knew and Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship, and they recognized the grace given to me. Yeah, exactly. So we see here that um, when James, Cephas, and John, uh, he mentioned, Paul mentioned them, and he calls them the pillars of the faith at that time because um, it was the three of them. In Acts chapter 15, verse 13. Turn there with me, please. Acts chapter 15, verse 13. <clears throat> even, after, even though I've been working slaving all day, I still made a mistake by not giving you the right signature for that passage of Scripture, but that's okay. When they finished, then spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Mm. So we see James again. And then let's turn, if you will, to the last passage of Scripture, and that is Jude, verse 1. Because there's only one chapter in Jude, so you can't get too confused about the verses or the chapters. So just then, that's the last book before Revelation. Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So see, we see that James is the brother, Jude and James are brothers. So although the author identifies himself as James, he says precious little else that would nail down who he was. So to find out who, G, who, who, who this author, try to, uh, try to determine who this author was, we, do, we go and we pull first from external evidence, some outside evidence that is outside of the Bible. And so the earliest author to take on the task of identifying the author of this epistle of James was Origen. Origen, uh, he was around from around 185 uh, A.D. to 254 A.D. But according to Thomas D. Lear, Origen expressed no doubt in its canonicity. Now, the word canonicity, if you will, simply means he accepted that, in other words, he accepted James and the remaining 65 books that comprise the Bible uh, as the entire body of inspired scripture. So when we talk about the word being canonized, it is the, uh, inspired, it is the entire body. It's been accepted into the entire body of the Bible as the inspired scripture.
scripture or the word of God as distinct from what we call the word, we use the word spurious. And the word spurious, it means false, exactly, or fake. We know we've heard a lot about the word fake in our news here lately from our president. He calls the news fake news. So that word fake has become such a, uh, a prominent word to be used in this day and time. And, then, and, and, and it means that it was non-inspired writing. So if it wasn't canonized, then it is not inspired writing. So as Christians, we believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 tells us that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That is, man was moved by the Spirit of God to write the words that they have, that he has, that they have written uh, and that the Holy Spirit oversees everything. And, and this is a powerful thing to remember. Um, when we think about even when God spoke his word, it was the Spirit of God watching over the word to perform it. Because when he said, let there be, when God says, and when the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he spoke these things, uh, when he spoke the word, he released the word, because God says his word will not go out, boy, not come back, boy, but it would accomplish that, what he sent it forth to accomplish. Um, he spoke it, and when he released the word, just like you and I release our word, we don't just release the sound of words. We also release a force of air behind it that pushes those words out. And that's the spirit of God. And so be careful what you say out of your mouth because you're releasing that spirit uh, that you are saying, what you're saying, whatever that kind of spirit that is, when you speak that out of your mouth, it's like you're spitting out um, uh, hatred and bitterness in your words. They just, it just, it's a spirit that... Make sure that those words have an impact, the kind of impact that your heart embraced them and released them to be. So you want to be careful how you speak um, your word. And I, James says something so important, and I'm going to move on here. But he says um, that the, you know, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So we have to be careful what we say out of our mouths because what we say out of our mouths as Christians has a direct impact on how people understand God, how they understand Christ. So we have to really be careful how we speak. Um, but all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped, Unto, unto, you know, unto all good work. And then, and as such, it has been given to us by God for our learning. The word of God, inspired word of scripture, has been given to us for our learning. That is so important. Don't miss that. Jay, um, that that's um, Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Uh, it's been given to us for our learning. For whatever things Paul is talking, he said, for whatever things were written before, were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Listen, our hope, everything that we that we stand in need of, our expectations, they are not found in another person. They are found in the Word of God, the Scripture, the Holy Scriptures. I don't know if you understand that, but that is so important for you. And I to understand, and, and sometimes it's hard because when you're in the throes of anger, when you're in the throes of pain, and when you're in the throes of confusion and frustration and fear, some, 
though sometimes the word doesn't come to you. But when you read it over and over again and you get it in your spirit, I believe that the Spirit of God intercedes at that moment where you begin to feel despair and encourages you and empowers you to stand and cheer up because why? God has got your back. God will not abandon those who are here. I'm telling you, he will not abandon those who are here. Uh, he says, so, yeah, so it is for our hope. So in AD 382, the Synod of Rome and the Synod of Carthage met to seal a permanent place among the New Testament epistles for James because there was a struggle for that. Now, a synod is nothing more than uh, it's comprised, if you will, of a presbytery, or a presbytery is another name for bishops or elders. Uh, and so, who were, who were, and, and so, bishops and elders are those called by God to handle um, the spiritual affairs of the church by teaching and presiding over the spiritual well-being of the congregation. That so, the pastors and the elders are and are, are important, and you have to understand that. So, they have an important role to play. They alone have been called by God for this purpose to serve God, to represent Christ. I know for me that God said over 30, almost 30 years ago now, get up, get on your knees. You are my pastor. This is for something in the morning. Get up, get on your knees. You are my pastor, and you're going to bring millions to me. And so I said, God, the first thing came out of my mind was, God, I need an education because I really didn't know a whole lot about the Bible. So it's important for us to understand um, that um, the elders, the bishops, or the elders, if you will, they are called by God um, to represent Christ in the earth, to teach and preside over the spiritual well-being of the congregation. And so it behooves us to stay in the word of God and to, to, to pray in prayer and in fasting and in studying the word of God. Uh, and so we must learn to do that. Now, the, um, the only other biblically recognized presbytery is the deacon. And you'll find that in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. But I want, you to, I want to point out that the role of the deacon is to manage the secular affairs alongside of the, of the, of the uh, bishops and elders. That's the role. And I, I made an error on my notes here, and I want to correct that real quick here because um, um, that, I, I, don't want that to, I don't want that to go anywhere. But here... <clears throat> but they are to work alongside bishops, the bishop and the elder, those whom God has called and ordained and established in the ministry. I, I have, in my years, encountered some deplorable behavior of deacons. They, men that were ordained by their pastor, to be to serve in the position of deacon, where they actually thought that they had more authority than the pastor, and that's the problem. And so we have to understand that deacons are not called by God to be either the, an elder or bishop, at least not at the time that they're filling that position. Now, sometime down the road, God may call them to be an elder, but then there's a process that they have to go through. They have to go through catechesis. They have to be trained. And they have to walk. We have to observe their walk for a while. So I was called as a deacon, as we call it in the, in the day, walking in the light. 
So I walked in the light um, for quite some time before I was ordained a deacon, but I had to study. And then I had to, once I had studied and the pastor and the deacons got together uh, along with my family and the congregation, and they sat me in the center of the congregation, in front of the congregation, actually, in the front of the church, and, the, and, and, I was, and I was questioned, if you will, by the pastor and the deacons, and I, by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, I was able to answer the questions, but afterwards they laid hands on me, prayed on me, and ordained the business, and the pastor ordained me a deacon. And so, and that I understood that my role was to assist the pastor, to work with the pastor, not to take advantage of or try to over, over, step my boundaries and become what I was ill, ill equipped to become. First, because I was, I did not lack the level of knowledge and experience and and, and walk with God that He had. Secondly, because I was a baby, I was a novice. <clears throat> So, again, deacons are not called by God to be either an elder or a bishop. If you look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, when the people complain to the, to the elders or to the, the apostles about not being the, the, the Greek-speaking Jews, not getting their daily food or rations, um, the elders, they, 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 they say, look, I'm sorry, but this is not our role. Our, we are to give ourselves to the study of the word of God and, and the teaching of the word of God. So look among you and choose seven men uh, that uh, of good re- of good reputation uh, that uh, are full of the spirit, uh, and uh, and then I will lay hands on them, uh, and that pleased the congregation, and so they did. They 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 chose seven they they chose seven deacons, seven men, and then they were laid hands on the, the twelve. Summoned, here's what it says. The twelve summoned the multitude of the deacons and said, "It is a certain, I'm sorry, the multitude of disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve table.' So that's so important. That's a key, uh, Executive Pastor Jewel. That is one of the keys to um, proper church leadership uh, and and order, uh, and that is that deacons are supposed to serve, you know, in dealing with the secular things, the food and the tables and, you know, working alongside of the bishop or the pastors of the, or the pastors of the church, not to circumvent him, not to try or her because they are female pastors. I know some don't believe in, in women pastors, but I'm one that happened to believe in women pastors. Uh, and so I believe that, that is the case. But he says, uh, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint. We may appoint. So we see the apostles are doing the appointing. God has not called them. Uh, and so we have to make sure that we understand that the deacon serves at the request of the head of the pastor. Over the uh, that we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. It is so important that we have good people in place, good leadership in place, in order that the pastor can focus on what he has been, he or she has been called to, and that is to give themselves to the study of the word of God and to 
ministering the word of God and in prayer. That's so important. <clears throat> so others to support the epistle of James and his authorship were Jerome and Augustine. And you may know him as St. Augustine. Some call him Augustine, but St. Augustine. Other early church fathers, such as Eusebius, Chrysostom, Andrew of Crete, Rufinus, uh, Prosper of Aquitaine, and Gregory of Tours, and Bede, uh, and uh, uh, Bede, if you want, if you will, uh, Barhabbos, also believe the author of this epistle to be James, the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that. And from an external point, there are, there are many people who believe, and there's much out there that says that he is, although there are some that doubt it. Um, now, internal evidence, because, the, because this epistle does not uh, really provide specific information beyond a name, we, can, we, we employ the process of elimination. For example, both James of Alphaeus, Alphaeus, if you will, that's Matthew chapter 10, verse 3, and the other, and, and that's in Matthew chapter 10, verse 3, but the other gospels list them as well. And then James, the brother of John, were called uh, by, uh, who were called by Jesus as his disciples. Now, James, uh, James of Alphaeus was eliminated as a contender because of his obscurity. Once Jesus passed off the scene, and rarely do you hear his name anymore. He's gone. He's off the scene. So uh, never to be heard from again. Then there's, there, and then there is uh, James, the father of Judas, who was a disciple of, uh, of, Peter, of Jesus. Jesus called him as a disciple. So there were two Judases, if you will. But this was not the Judas we're talking about, Judas Iscariot. This was a different Judas. Judas is the son of James. Some said that maybe James, the father of Judas, may have written it, but there's nothing to indicate that James wrote this either. And so, and so that leaves us with um, James, the brother of Zebedee, uh, uh, James, the brother of John, and the son of Zebedee, but he was slain by Herod, Agrippa I, uh, with the sword around AD 44. And now you'll find that in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. So we see then that he was not around to write this, and so apparently he had not attained the position, if you will, of leadership that uh, the brother of Jesus did uh, within the church. And so he would have died prior to the time that this epistle was written. So we have only James, the brother of our Lord Jesus, left. So by, just by the process of elimination. And so we can settle upon this conclusion based on James chapter 1 and then Acts chapter 15, verse 23, why? Because in both letters, uh, and, and, and aside from some, uh, aside from Paul, um, only James uses this word greetings, uh, and so these are the only two places where the New Testament, where in the New Testament, within the New Testament, to which his name was is connected uh, with these greetings. So as well as we will see later, James makes extensive use. Of, old, of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. For example, James' vocabulary consists of 570 words. Uh, about 73 of those words are not found anywhere else in the New Testament. That's, that's good. So of James' words, all except 25 are found in the Septuagint. And the Septuagint, and we won't go into all of this right now, but the Septuagint was the Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, 
where 70, 70 men were commissioned um, by Constantine, I think it was Constantine, to, to interpret the Old Testament, to, to, to trans, translate the, the Old Testament Hebrew scripture into Greek so that, they, so that he could pass those out um, to, to select folks, uh, select leaders of his, because he had adopted, um, in Constantinople, he had adopted um, um, the Christian faith, they say. I find in my reading on, on uh, Constantine, I have some struggle that he actually did uh, receive uh, Christ as it says that he actually became a Christian, but his actions would indicate that he might indeed have uh, become a Christian. But anyway, um, um, I, I want to name, I want to deal with those, there are uh, at least uh, five words that um, that James uses, but I won't touch on those right now. I won't even go there. I just want to move forward now. Uh, so let's move forward here. Now, additionally, by James's allusion to or indirect reference to Old Testament scriptures, we see that he um, is extremely knowledgeable. He is extremely knowledgeable of and familiar with the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is, again, the Septuagint. Uh, and it's called Septuagint because it's 70, because 70 men were called, 70 priests were called to transcribe uh, the scripture. Now, let me give you some, some examples of what James, of how James alludes to the uh, Old Testament, if you will, to, to demonstrate the level of knowledge this man had uh, concerning. You think Paul was sharp. This young man, this gentleman here was very sharp uh, when it came to the Old Testament. Of course, Paul was, was a, a Pharisee, and he was trained as a priest. Uh, and so he was more, so he was very powerful in his knowledge of, of Old Testament scripture. That's why he is such a powerful force when you read um, about his life beginning as a Christian in Acts chapter 9 where he was, where God called, where he came face to face with Christ on the road to Damascus. But here, James chapter 1, let's go, James chapter 1 verse 10. Go there with me, Will. Uh, go to James chapter 1 verse 10 and then put your finger there and go to Isaiah chapter 40 verse 6. James chapter 1 verse 10. And then Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6. Go there, if you will. James chapter 1, verse 10. And Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6. If you have it, say, I have it. If you don't have it, say, wait up. And I'll be happy to wait up. <clears throat> While you guys are way deciding whether you want to comment or not. I'm going to go to Isaiah chapter 40 myself here, and uh, we'll go from there. The, we're, what we're talking about here, now we're talking about the book of James, and we're doing, I'm, I'm doing this teaching here because um, I read to you, um, I read to you Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scriptures given by inspiration of God. And then I read to you uh, Paul's uh, Words, the Lord's words through the Apostle Paul in that 15th chapter, uh, in that fourth verse of Romans, where it says that Scripture was given for our learning so that we can have hope. That's where our hope comes from, the Word of God. So 
Um, we can shout and we can scream and we can jump and we can dance and we can sweat and we can fall out. And all of that's good. But why are we jumping and shouting and falling out and sweating and snotting and crying and wailing? Why? Because we know the word of God. We need to understand the word of God. And so that's why we're doing, that's why I want to start this teaching series uh, on the book of James. So James chapter 1, verse 10, and, and I'm going to show you how he uses the Old Testament so, so, so effortlessly, if you will. Verse 10 says what? But the rich, let me start at verse 9. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as the flower, as a flower of the field, he will pass away. But no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuit. Now, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6, you see the illusion. He's alluding to or referring to, if you will, by in a roundabout way. Verse uh, chapter 6 of Isaiah um, I'm sorry, chapter 40, verse 6 of Isaiah. It says, the voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All grass, all flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass, verse 7, the grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are as grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. I, I, I just, you know, and then uh, I, I had to do that. I, I had to put that eight, seven, and eight verse in there because that's so powerful. Um, but um, all flesh is like the flower of, a gra- of grass, and it's one day going to fade. We put so much effort into we, you know, we have so many people that say, uh, we have the news that says the most powerful person, the most beautiful person, the most beautiful woman in the world, the most eligible bachelor in the world, the most handsomest person in the world. All of that stuff fades over time. That's what the world gives attention to. And when the world does that, the world just does not. It celebrates youth. It celebrates beauty and all of that. And it puts it up on a pedestal well. Well, humility, God, you know, you can't just do that. Everything as it's season and everything at some point will, will pass away, fade and fall away. And both, by the way, is not just for the rich, but it's also for the poor and the middle class. Everybody at some point will, pay, will, will fade away. Now, James chapter 2, verse 21 is another one where, where James alludes to the, to the Old Testament. James chapter 2, verse 21 and he makes reference to Genesis chapter 22, verses 2 and 9. I know that I'm talking fast, so ask me to slow down if I'm a little, moving a little too fast. But uh, Genesis chapter 22, verses 2 and verse 9. So here's what we see here. Genesis, in, in James chapter 2, uh, verse 21, he says this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works 
when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Interesting, the Hebrew author uses that same make reference to Abraham as well in his offering up of Isaac. But then so does Paul in the book of Galatians, uh, I believe it is, and uh, in the book of Romans. Uh, but here in Genesis 22, verses 2 and 9, we see, Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And then verse 9, then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar and upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out, verse 10, stretched out his hand uh, and took the knife to slay his son. Of course, we know that that's not the end of it, because but an angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, 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 Abraham. And he said, here am I. Verse 12, he said, he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. So we see then <clears throat> that James has a knowledge of the Old Testament. And I want to move on to this. There's three more that I want to deal with before we move because we're getting close to our time here, but James chapter 2, verse 23, uh, and I want you to compare that with Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. James chapter 22, verse 23, and Genesis 15 and 6. Let me go to Genesis 15 and 6, and then we'll go. And, of course, now you, you're probably familiar with this. Uh, this is where God caused a deep sleep on a, to fall upon Abraham, and then at some point in Abraham, then he tells Abraham what he's going to do. And this is a this is a unilateral covenant. This is the covenant that God makes Himself to for Himself to Himself, uh, and Abraham has nothing to do with it. This is God making the promise Himself. Genesis James chapter two verse twenty three says, "And the Scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God." Israel Hostin has a song out, I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. Okay, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he was accounted, and he, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So we see that even there, the righteousness, you know, that, that connection there, the, James 4, Verse 6, let me move forward here. I'm going to move forward here because I don't want to put anybody to sleep here. But James chapter 4, verse 6, and Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. And I'm sure you all had some long days today. So let's just move forward here so that we can get this done with. I appreciate you joining us on today. But Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. Uh, because we want to be timely. We want to get out of here in a timely a manner. Verse chapter three, verse thirty-four, Proverbs, and then of course uh, James chapter four, verse six, where it reads, "But he gives more grace." Therefore, he said, "God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble." See, God resists the proud, and He gives grace to the humble. And then Proverbs chapter three, verse thirty. Four simply says, surely he scorns the scornful, 
but gives grace to the humble. So you see that James is very familiar with um, the Hebrew scriptures. And then the final one, James chapter 5, verse 11, and Psalm 1, the, the 103rd Psalm and the 8th verse. The 100. Okay, one more. Yeah, just one more, James, chapter 5, verse 11. Didn't you say something else? Uh, yeah, Psalm 1, and then comparing them. I'm comparing them. Okay. So, you, you're not tracking, obviously. <laughs> you're you going real fast. Okay. All right, well, I'll slow down. Uh, Psalm, 103rd number of the Psalms, and the 8th verse there. But I want to compare that with James, chapter 5, verse 11. Because remember, I said we're alluding to, James alludes, the Old Testament scriptures, and I want to point out those uh, to kind of help us along here. Uh, verse Chapter 5, verse 11 of James, it says, he says what? As you know, we count as blessed those who have per- persevered. Mm-hmm. You have heard of Jacob's per- perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And now my version says, my New King James Version says, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. See, we think that there's not, we, we go through all of our struggles, we, we tend to forget that God allows these things to happen, but when we come through, we will be we will be better off because of the struggles that we have. But then, then Psalm one one zero three verse eight says, "The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy." So God, um, <clears throat> God will. Wait a minute. Yeah. Okay. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. So God will be with us and he will use us. But God uses Job as an example of what it means to be persecuted and what Job went through. And many of you know the story of Job, so we won't go there tonight. Now, according to, to Merrill C. Tenney, as revised, as revised by Walter Dunnett, uh, James was brought up in the same environment as Jesus and was in the in close touch with him throughout the years that led up to his ministry. So we 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 know that uh, his background uh, his background would be practically the same as as the one that Jesus had. And as an interpreter of um, as an interpreter of the truth, he would have had advantage of knowing. Um, knowing Israel's history and knowing the geographical context thoroughly. James, while not a believer during the life of Jesus, John chapter 7, verses 2 through 8, he was a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. Jesus was a was a um, wit, I mean James was a witness, if you will, of the resurrection of Christ. James chapter fifteen, verse seven, where Paul is Paul here is talking, and Paul says this: After that, he was seen by James. 
So right there. Okay, first Corinthians. Yes, first Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse seven. After that, he was seen by James. So James was a witness to his resurrection, to his coming up out of the grave. And you gotta love it. And he was among those waiting for the spirit on the day of Pentecost. He was in the upper room with the mother Mary, his mother, and all the other disciples, the apostles, waiting for the day of Pentecost. Because Jesus said in Acts chapter one, you know, stay here until you let's go there real Acts chapter one, real quick. And and we're gonna have to conclude here. Um uh at this point, but I want to go to Acts chapter 1, and, and uh, um, I'm going to read a little bit, then I want to go to verse 14, because that's where it all runs. But Jesus said to them, he said, uh, being, and being in verse 4, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them, he commanded them uh, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So they were waiting there, and so they were, and, and in verse 14, it tells us where they were waiting at, and so, and who they, who were there with them, and they were waiting. So these, verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So at this point, his whole, it didn't mention his sisters, but it does mention his brothers. So, and then that sets us up for the, God, for the, for the epistle of Jude. Uh, that's the last book of Revelation. So we see that the brothers of Jesus, that included James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, those were the brothers of Jesus and half-brothers of Jesus, and they were there. So I'm going to leave it there because we have to, let me give you this right here and we'll move on. Um, on the withdrawal of Peter from, from Palestine in Acts chapter 12, verse 17, he took over Jesus, I mean, because if you go back to Acts chapter, I believe it's Acts chapter 12, you'll see that after James had been murdered by Herod Agrippa I in 44 AD with the, with the sword, then Peter was left, and Peter was arrested that same night and put in prison, and, and, and he was going to be slain by Herod the next morning. But God, but 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 um, but John Mark, if you will, and his mother, um, and the church at Jerusalem met at John Mark's house. And Mark's gospel, you'll see that, but you won't see that there. But you'll see that in Acts chapter thirteen, um, and Acts chapter eleven, I think it is, or twelve. But anyway, uh, John Mark uh, and his and the the the, 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 uh, the disciples were in the house of John Mark's mother. And they were all gathered in the room, and they were praying that God would free Peter from prison. <laughs> this is beautiful. And so an angel came and, and smote Peter in the side, and Peter woke Peter up, and, and he took the chains off of Peter and he told Peter, get up, get dressed, let's go. And he proceeds, he proceeds him, uh, and, and Peter follows, and he opens the gate to the prison right between the guards, and no squeaking of the, uh, nothing. And he walks down, and Peter, and he walks down the road a little bit, and then Peter, it dawns on Peter that, hey, I've just been, you know, God just freed me, an angel. That's true. And so he heads straight to John Mark's mother's house, and he knocks on the on the gate, and 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 the little girl Rhoda, the servant girl Rhoda, 
she hears the knocking and she hears the voice and she 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 hears it and she recognizes it and she runs and she tells the people that are praying and they think that she's seen a ghost or that she's hearing things, but then all of a sudden they kept hearing the knocking. So when they went, they saw it was Peter. So they they, they shouted, but Peter told them to keep the noise down. So when Peter, so Peter had to get out of Dodge, and so James, the brother of Jesus, steps up. And he heads the church. He takes over the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. And so, so he was noted for his strict adherence to the law, Galatians 2.12, uh, and was later champion of the Jews who had felt uneasy about Paul's reputation in Acts chapter 12, 21, verses 17. 20. So I want to stop there, but we can get excited about this. But, that, but I want to do some more teaching on this because the more you learn about who you're serving, better off we want to be. Thank you, Father. We thank you tonight for the opportunity to enter your holy presence and to um, experience the joy and the riches of the treasures contained in your holy scripture. Thank you so much for feeding us on tonight. Thank you for allowing us, oh God, to enter your presence. Now, God, I ask that those who have joined us on tonight I ask that you will move upon their hearts in a special way on tonight, that you will give courage, encouragement, that you will give strength, that you will empower, that you will embrace and endure and, 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 uh, and, um, and speak to God, speak to their hearts, let them understand what was taught tonight, Lord God, and help them to endure the hardships that they are facing on tonight. Strengthen them, Lord God, where they are weak. Encourage them, Lord God, where there is doubt. And, Lord God, build them up to serve you mightily. You are an awesome and a mighty God. And we bless your name and we give you glory in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us fallen before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, the only wise God, the glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. And the people of God said, Amen. Have a blessed and, and productive week in the Lord. Thank you for joining us on this evening. We enjoyed having you. Now we've got to get out.